Hi, I'm Shari De Silva, curator of the Jeffrey Bauer Art and Archival Collections at the Lunaganga Trust. This podcast is part of the Bauer 100 program, a celebration of the architect's 100th birthday. Jeffrey Bauer was famously silent about his work. There are only a handful of records where he opens up about his influences, routines, and practice. He also rarely saved material like correspondence or sketches, which often form the core parts of an archive. The Oral Histories Project tries to fill this void by collecting the memories, stories, and experiences of Bawa's friends, clients, and colleagues. Thank you for tuning in. Today we have Sonia Raffle and her husband Michael Snelling on the program. Suhanya is the executive director of the Emplas Museum in the West Kowloon Cultural District of Hong Kong and a trustee of the Jeffrey Bauer and Lunuganga Trusts. She has previously held many senior positions at major art institutions in Sydney and Brisbane. I met Suhanya and Michael at the home of their close friends Druvi and Sharmini Desarum in Colombo. The house was a renovation Jeffrey undertook in 1986, and it is now managed by the Jeffrey Bauer Trust. In this episode, you will hear excerpts from my interviews with Sohanya and Michael individually first and then together. Growing up in the Raffle House that was designed by Jeffrey, Sohanya reflects on her friendship with the architect, who became a lifelong family friend after the commission of the house. We'll start with a very simple question. What is your first memory of Jeffrey? You know, memories are so misleading things, but they are there because of all kinds of other conversations, other images, and there are pictures in my family album of uh, my parents with Jeffrey, with myself as a really a, a toddler, two-year-old, three-year-old. Um, and so those memories are constructed around those images. In the end, you think, yes, that is a memory because it's the evidence of the photograph. But for me, my very strong memory of Jeffrey is after he had built the Raffle House and we were in there, and he would come and visit my parents every night and share dinner together. And this would happen consecutively for weeks and months and years. And it was just part of our day that in the evening, that's what happened, that Jeffrey would come. Another, uh, my, my father's partner in the practice, Dr. Panditharatnam, and, and uh, my mum and dad's so these four. And dinner would always be very late in usual Sri Lankan style. We would really begin till 9.30, um, And listening to music, conversation, a lot of laughter. That is my memory of Jeffrey. And what is your first impression of him? As a child, that he was very tall. <laughs> he was very tall. Um, that's a first impression. And then as, a, as we grew together, or as we grew older, as I grew older, um, the memory of Jeffrey is a highly influential person in my life in relation to life choices, the decision to work in the arts, um, conversations about what matters in life, aesthetics, architecture, films, travel, leisure, pleasure, friendship, conservation, all of these sub- subjects and topics Jeffrey had very You know, he had a very, um, he always had opinions and one didn't always agree with those opinions, but it was always an important conversation and dialogue um, for me because it also helped me form my own opinions. So Jeffrey was a constant figure in my life as a child and then as an adult. Um, So it would be great to talk a little bit about the Bradford House. Which year was that? Raffle House was in the 60s after the Ina de Silva House. I think we moved in 
in 67, no. no, earlier, 64. I was born 1962. It was being built while I was still a toddler and I think I was in there when I was about four. And can you describe the house? It's um, a courtyard house, a house that sits right at the end of a lane of Ward Place, um, at the bottom of, of the lane. It's, um, for me, the house was centered around the two courtyards, the garden spaces, our bedroom, which looked over one of the internal courtyards, the staircase going up. Um, my mother was a musician, and so we would have many soirees that took place in the house, and the garden was used as um, the place where the audience sat. And as young children, very young children, we would sit on the balconies and look down. We were not allowed to come and mingle. We were certainly allowed to come early before the concert and eat my grandmother's rainbow sandwiches, which we loved. Um, but then we would listen to the music from the balcony, which looked right over the courtyard and the performance space. So memories of the house are linked to activities like that. Breakfast, the breakfast terrace with the black and white tiles um, where we all gathered for breakfast and for lunch and um, very social space. The mysterious space for us in the house was my father's office, which was behind a hidden door, which was um, um, had this beautiful textured surface, and you wouldn't see the door unless you knew it was there. And then when you pushed it, you realized that there was a opening. So it was a hidden door, and next to the, the door was the hidden bar, which you could also open and have drinks. But, but my father's surgery, he was a doctor, uh, was a space that we were not allowed to go to because that was where some patients in the evenings would come and visit. But we knew it was there. Um, then, of course, the other memories of the house are the amazing staircase that went up four floors and that you could look down um, and run it, running up and down running up and down very fast. And I remember my brother and I, very close in age, I used to um, torment him really, to say that I could go up and down much faster than he could <laughs> and, and um, challenge him to these races. I think probably in hindsight, as a parent, totally dangerous activity, but as children do, we, we, we did that. A beautiful house. I think the other part of the house that I remember a lot um, were there were the garages that you you entered the house through an, an archway, which was the porch, and then you drove straight into a set of garages. Um, and we used to, and behind the garage was a thin, long um, patch of land, uh, also a, a very small, narrow garden. With, which had bamboo on one side. And I, um, I used to, I made a little club with our neighborhood kids and we were all called the Busy Bees. <laughs> and the Busy Bees would meet every afternoon after school underneath the bamboo behind the garage. And that was where we would rehearse our various activities, which ranged from doing plays through to um, games, nights, to all kinds of things that children do, but they took place in this corridor behind um, the garage because it felt secret, um, outside, and ours. So it's kind of claimed that space is children. Reflecting the personalities of the users of the house, but it was a very social home. Many, many visitors, family, music, um, friends, dinners, yeah, children. It was a wonderful home. Um, and so you did mention that you came to the house often at How do you think you felt about the house over the years? 
I, I, I know he loved the house. He loved the house. But, you know, Jeffrey always loved people. And people also make places. And so for him, building that house, I know was a pleasure because of the conversations and the friendship that formed between my parents and himself. And, they, and then it became a lifelong friendship because of that commission. Um, and the time, yeah, and I think for him, he adored being in the raffle house with the raffles. So they became friends with the commission? That's right. Yeah. My mother um, had gone and seen Ina's house because they were friends. And she thought, oh, we need a house like this. This is very early, you know, in the 60s, one of his earliest houses. And she persuaded my father that that's what we should be doing. We should be commissioning Jeffrey Bauer to build a house for us. And Jeffrey at the time was totally unknown, didn't have the kind of reputation that we know now. Um, and yeah, and, and he, she approached him. And from there, the commission grew. They, they bought the land and went from there. It was a set of stables and he used an aspect of the stables, which became the garages for the cars, um, as the first kind of structural element around which the house then grew. It was a very, not a very big block, plot of land, so it became a stacked house. And, and that's when they became fast friends. Um, in fact, my father and Jeffrey, lifelong best friends, very, very, very close friends. Every, after we migrated to Australia, Jeffrey would come and spend every New Year's um, holiday period with my parents. And they would always organize their year according to that, the time when Jeffrey would visit us in Australia. Um, yeah, it's a strong, long friendship and we saw each other all the time. And then he built for the personalities? Yeah, so there was a brief was there because my mother was a musician. There needed to be a, a, a living room that could hold her grand piano. The grand piano was a beautiful broadwood. It was a concert grand, very large instrument. And was a gift that my father had given my mother when they had their first child. And so this was a central part of the family's identity. And part of the commission was it need, the, the house needed to be able to hold these concerts. Um, clearly also the, um, my father's office as a doctor to be able to do his work. And then the bedrooms. Interestingly, um, you know, a very beautiful element of the design that he made for the raffle house were the, the coconut rafters and the way he used the, the coconut um, the trunks to form the, the avenue, not the avenue, but really the corridor. Um, and then at the end of the bed of, for my parents, mm. you know, the roof and the rafters were held by this single coconut pillar. And the children's room um, was, you, was also had had mirrored this structure. Jeffrey used to always say that he, he built it so that Mama and Dada could scratch their toes <laughs> on the end of the bed, which had this um, beautiful collar. And in, in the style of many of Jeffrey's buildings at the time, he built in many elements, including their double bed, which was a built-in and recessed uh, piece of furniture, but it was actually a piece of architectural design in, in relationship to the room. And if we talk about his work as an architect in general, what do you think mattered to him most when designing the building? I think the, the site matters to him the most, the, the, what the site gives him. Because, yes, the... Um, the two, for my, for my parents' house, there was an existing little sapodilla tree, which became then a central element of the courtyard. He left that tree there, um, and it's a beautiful tree. 
So what he encountered and he thought would be useful and good, he kept. So the site also informed his architecture. I think that's a really important part of what his, his design aesthetic. Um, and when you think about his urban houses, he completely reversed what had been you know, the uh, norm for the middle classes to live in, which was the veranda house that sat in the middle of a parcel of land. And as the city became more and more dense and urban, he reversed that arrangement of how we, um, how we interact with external spaces by making us look inward into internal courtyards that were open spaces rather than to be um, confined to a veranda outside and look out, which then immediately opened up many more possibilities in terms of how you design your spaces. And he was very inventive in terms of how he allowed light in, in very tight spaces. And do you have a favorite place or space? That's a very, very difficult question to answer because I think for me, I rediscover, I discover Jeffrey's architecture and spaces every time I revisit. And that is, that's a wonderful thing. You know, I've been back to the Raffle House. It's no longer our house, but it's been used by another family. And it feels so different because the personality of that family is imbued in those places, but they are as rich as a result. So I think for me, um, I'm always learning something new when I go back. That said, I truly believe that Lunuganga as a piece of architecture, a piece of design, a place that is also a garden, that is not also a garden, is a most extraordinary place. And I would say it has to be one of my most favorite places on earth. And, and I think it's probably one of the most special places on, on the planet. Um, is there anything about his practice or personality that surprised you all the years? Just to go back to your earlier question about what is your favorite Jeffrey Bauer space, I am always discovering more Jeffrey Bauer places and spaces. I have not seen everything he's done. I've seen many of what he's done, and then sometimes revisiting those spaces, you learn something more. Even this house here, which is the Deserum house, which was built in the 80s, almost 20 years after the Raffle house. And I used to come here because um, I know the Deserum so well. The, um, I'm learning it again. I'm discovering the space again. And that is such an enormous pleasure. And I think that is the pleasure of a great architect. Great architects, you, you never tire of those spaces because they keep giving. And that discovery is um, a true joy. That's a wonderful thing to say. So for me, I'm still discovering. There is more for me to learn. In terms of Jeffrey as a person and what did I learn? from him and with him and together. Um, for me, an enduring memory with Jeffrey is laughter and how we would laugh a lot together. Um, and that was, that was so much fun, even in very difficult times during the 80s when the violence was so bad in Sri Lanka, there were times when you had to find a way to laugh and we, we, we did. Um, he was an extremely generous person as a human being, as a friend, but at the same time, he's an intensely selfish person and he would take a lot from you as well. Um, but his selfishness was absolutely apparent and he was very clear about it and uh, didn't hide it at all. And he was also often like a child. Uh, he was a 
true instinct and he loved beautiful things and interesting things and mechanical things and if he saw that you had something that he liked he would make it very clear that that would be very nice thank you very much <laughs> and so a gift was clearly the next step and the gift was coming from you to him but the exchange was more than equal it one was very happy to to give because you also understood that he um he enjoyed it and treasured it and got so much from that gift so it was never ever a problem so you mentioned how you and in as you grew up you became friends with Jeffrey in your own right um did you ever discuss literature art architecture or were those conversations like the conversations with Jeffrey around many topics and we roamed far and wide um were very important formative conversations for me because I didn't know him all my life I considered him a friend I still consider him a friend and but he was a very influential figure for me my choice of working in the arts I think in the end was formed by my mother and by him um and the the notion of value being placed in those kinds of vocations I understood it because of watching how he worked and how he interacted in the world. Um conversations around design and architecture, literature, conversa- uh, conservation were very important. I mean, I still remember um arguing with him about conservation and whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. And he was very iconoclastic and provocative about this idea of conservation he said that there is conservation is not a useful word in the vocabulary because we can't ever keep things as they are used to be because change is intrinsic to life so how can you keep something the same and to keep something the same is not necessarily a good thing and this was totally an antithesis to my training in museum world um because conservation is one of the key tenets of museum world for thinking about conserving for the future but i also think that that was a true wake conversation with jeffrey in in the sense of he needed to have interlocutors who would argue back and it was nice to have those arguments And did you discuss art with him and his art collection with Absolutely. We, we talked about the art collection a lot and why he bought things. And um, and again, I think these, these were all based on relationships. For Jeffrey, the relationship was absolutely central. So whether it's the relationship with Lakisena Naika or Barbara Sanzoni or Ina De Silva or Donald Friend, all of these people are also artists who played an important part in his architecture as well as in building the collection and then the other works that he acquired were often because of those relationships friends of friends introducing my relationship with him introduced him to a whole range of australian artists which became important for those artists in australia and so on. and those artists now have broadened out to be many other artists and the place of jeffrey then is amplified as a result so um the talk around art was very um expansive it was not really only about objects but about um the meaning of those objects the reason for making them um very informative very they also changed my view of how you commission artists and work with artists in defined spaces and so my work in australia as a curator i was very um bold and ambitious about commissioning artists in the for the projects i did and at the time for museums this was a very unusual thing to do because museums are 
averse to going forward with a, a commission without knowing exactly what it is. And so when you commission an artist, you really, really don't know what exactly you're going to get back, but you're opening up the possibility of a dialogue. And, the, and when I look back, I think that element of my practice came from Jeffries and watching how he did that work to make his architecture. And how did he do that work? I mean, um, well, it seems like it, he's, he makes it seem so effortless looking back. Mm. Um, but perhaps you actually saw it unfolding. Could you describe that? Um, I, I don't know that I saw it unfolding in the intimacy of the, of the conversation between artist and architect. I, I saw it unfolding as evidence. So I remember the lighthouse and the work that Lucky did in, in Lighthouse and talking to Jeffrey about, you know, how, why and how. And in, for, me, for, for what he would share with me was he would speak about it as structural problem solving. Oh, I needed a staircase, but it, I didn't want a dull staircase. So I thought I would talk to um, Lucky about that. Um, how they decided on and, and arrived at the solution, then you can speak to Lucky. He will tell you exactly how they, uh, how, from his point of view, how they arrived at that. Um, the same with Kandalanga and the work Lucky did there. I know for the Bento de Beach Hotel, um, that amazing ceiling that Nina did for, for him. Uh, talking to Ina, the, um, what I heard from her was she would challenge him about color and would always say, oh, but Jeffries, you know, you, you, you really need to have much more color. There's no good. And he would say, well, then you do the color. And, but he had that, he trusted, you know, he trusted in those relationships so intrinsically that I think any kind of um, relationship based on trust is then also you can't let down. And I'm sure that was also an uppermost part of both sides. They really wanted to make it work and they wanted to make it very, very good. And I think what you see is very, very good. And did he discuss books with you? Books we would always talk about um, was divided into two, um, you know, fiction and non-fiction. But really, Jeffrey um, never really talked to me about fiction. We always talked about um, my professional reading, which ranged from sort of art history, travel. Travel was a very, very... Um, important place for us to discuss how art histories, architecture histories were um, expressed. So where are you going was how that conversation always began. Are you going to Istanbul? Are you going to uh, Mahabalipuram? Are you going to, you know, those places were key um, parts of the conversation. You're going to South India, you must go to Brihadisvara like that. And why? Because of this architecture or because I saw a dance like this or sound like this. So really not fiction, but history, but all cross-disciplinary histories, performance, music, architecture, design, art. And did you, do you think he was interested in the histories of objects? Yeah, I think in um, I think Jeffrey's interest in the histories of objects were not necessarily about art histories. They were much more to do with maybe personal. You know, he'd been to Rome and he wanted to, and he and he was interested in the kinds of. Um, objects he encountered there. And so, uh, like, again, travel, 
informed the histories of objects rather than the other way. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that he was in, you would say he was a connoisseur. You know, I don't think he was interested to be a person like that. Mm -hmm. He had a much more broad-based, expansive approach to objects and place. Um, are there any questions in English you could have asked? Questions I wished I could have asked Jeffrey. No, I think we had many conversations. There's nothing that one ever regrets. Not at all. If there's one thing I wish, is that I wish he had more time with us so that he got to know our sons. That would that's totally personal. Because the pleasure of friends is that. Next we have Michael Snelling recalling an amusing story from his first meeting with Jeffrey and of the ease in which he is able to photograph spaces designed by the architect. Michael Snelling has an extensive professional background in arts management, artistic direction and education. Most recently, he was director and CEO of the National Art School in Sydney. He was founding director of the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair and artistic director of the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane. He's also a photographer, writer and curator and has held lecturing positions at universities in Sydney, Adelaide and Brisbane. He has been publisher and editor of titles in the areas of art history and criticism and numerous exhibition catalogues. Thank you, Michael. Um, Pleasure, Shari. We would like to start with a very simple question. What is your first memory of Jeffrey Bauer? Um, my, f my first real memory is very clear, but I have preceding memories that were from stories, really, about Jeffrey before I ever met him. But maybe we could come back to those another time. My first memory of him was at Unaganga, and it was in 1990, and it was when Sohanya took me there to meet him. And it was our first trip together to Sri Lanka. And we arrived at the house, and they said, oh, he's down at the Field of Jars. So we went down to the Field of Jars, just the two of us, and we got there and Jeffrey's sort of ensconced with a team of people building things, but all it's all been discussed in Singular, which I didn't understand. But they had these two large iron columns and a whole lot of bricks and they were building. And they build and then, there'd be discussion and it would be knocked down and then they'd build again and it would be knocked down and there'd be a lot of laughter and there'd be a lot of serious discussion and so on. And at some point I said to Jeffrey, what, what, what are you doing? And he said, well, we need a ruin. <laughs> and somehow for me that was a defining characteristic of him because it summed up his willingness to just play, but also that the fact that the ruin never eventuated because it was never good enough, like it doesn't exist. The columns are still lying there 20 years or whatever it is later, but the ruin was demolished because it was never a good enough ruin. And so that led to this sort of romanticism that I find that he's, he has. Um, and there was someone who once described him as the world's last great romantic architect. And all, I, I think that's... There's a lot of truth in that. There's a sense in the way that he um, approached the world, which was both very serious and playful at the same time, but and highly intellectualized through modernism and an understanding of it, but not in the least bit would he allow that to be overridden by um, anything except his belief in things that were intangible not tangible in a way. You know, he loved his sense of proportion and space and sight and so on were things that were very, they're very particular. And the more time goes by and the more you come in and out of his places, the more I feel that. So my memory of him was a very particular one, but it became a sort of extended memory. 
in a way. And if you were to think of your first impression of him, perhaps he's very tall, <laughs> very tall, and and with a presence. I mean, anyone will tell you he had a presence. Um, I never knew his brother, but his brother must have had an even bigger presence. And so the two of them together must have been quite extraordinary to encounter, you know, just to, if they were there. Um, in the Sri Lankan context, of course, he was very tall. I mean, in any context, he was very tall, but he was very tall here. And he always, I always remember him in light colored clothing, not dark colored clothing. And so his, there was a sense of him being lean and tall and his, his head was, his features and head were very strong and prominent. And so the sense of him as a um, physically memorable person was um, always there, always there. So do you have a favorite recollection of GP? I have a favourite one. Um, the one I just told you about the, um, the ruin is one of my favourite ones. I'm not sure. I, I have memories of him laughing a lot. There's, there was always a lot of laughing. Oh, 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 oh. Um, and it was a very particular laugh. Um, it was almost like a stage laugh, but it was still very genuine. But I can't remember what we laughed about. No, I can't remember the story. So I would remember those better than me, but he laughed a lot. Um, and there's, but there was a way in which he could switch from laughing to being quite serious about something that mattered to him that he wanted to discuss. That was a, a memory, a mood shift kind of memory. And I, I think he liked to gossip or he liked to hear gossip. And so I have a sense of him enjoying people sitting around him talking about things that he was filing away and enjoying. So that's one set of memories. I, um, I love the way that when in the early days when he used to come to Australia, which is where I used to see him much more often, uh, and he would stay at Sonia's parents' place and we would, we'd all be there for endless meals and lots of drinking and so on was the clear warmth between the three of them, between Carmel, Christopher and Geoffrey, um, and the way in which they had that kind of relationship that is just so familiar and so deep-seated and old that they would they'd get irritated with one another in the most friendly ways. You know, Carmel would say, Christopher, you've got two cigarettes going at once. You know, and, uh, sorry, Jeffrey, you've got two cigarettes. Christopher never smoked at all and was very annoyed with Jeffrey for smoking and would continually harangue him. Um, and Carmel would get annoyed. And they had these very big, those lovely brass bowls, and they would be like full of cigarette butts. Full of them. Um, but Jeffrey was just very comfortable there. He clearly came and was comfortable. I didn't know for a long time that he came at New Year when the rest of the household took off and there was no one to look after him back here in Colombo and, and that that's really what was also underlying it. But I didn't know that at the time. It didn't really matter. But there was just a deep, long-standing friendship there that was affectionate, beyond affection. But they're the kind of memories I have of him. And do you have a favourite place or a space for you? Um, I came into his life later. No, it was 1990 when we met. Um, so for me, there's a sort of a mix. There are the places uh, like the Raffle House, which um, I, I've experienced with other people living in it, not with the Raffle family living in it, but that I knew through photographs. There's a lovely set of black and white photographs that... Um, the rifles had that were taken just as the house was completed. And they're really beautiful. And that's what introduced me. I saw those before I ever actually saw a building in the flesh. I saw those in Australia. There was the white book, the Miramar book before that, but somehow those black and white photographs of the rifle house are the ones I remember the most. When I came to Sri Lanka and started to see them, um, number 11, 
for me was just an absolute revelation. I loved it. I loved its mystery and discovery and the way you'd come in and the cars were parked in the front of the house, in the inside the house, and you'd walk down this beautiful long white corridor with the with the um, little courtyardy amounts of light coming through and then you'd through the pool with the Donald Friend doors and then into what is possibly still my favourite Bawa room, which is the lounge room there. Um, and I love that room because it oh, you, you come into it and there's seating and it's intimate and it's different kinds of seating, but you have this open space with light pouring into it. And when it rains, the, light is, the rain is just raining into the middle of the room and not in the middle of the room, to the, in two-thirds of the way into the room. And then he's placed a small bench, and the bench is disproportionately small. So it makes the room appear as though the wall is further away than it really is. And those little optical tricks and the sensory thing of having the rain come in, just magic, totally magic. But it's hard to get past Lunaganga or... And, and for me, the project that I most remember him working on was Kandalama. And so that was there, and there were politics involved in that project. And but his way, in a way, of dealing with the politics was to include that into the design, and to to say that at some point this building will disappear back into the jungle from which I have erected it, if you like. And I I think that's um, that's the mark of somebody who really knows what they're doing, and is full of complete confidence in terms of saying, yes, I'm hearing your criticisms but this is how I'm going to deal with it, and in totally surprising way. You know, most people do the opposite. They would say, no, I'm going to make a big statement. But his statement was to, in fact, push the hotel back into, into the um, place from which it had arisen. And the other sign of that was the way in which he built around the physical things, the rocks and the trees and so on that were there. And there were little stories that I'd hear of, you know, the builders calling and Mr. Bauer, Mr. Bauer, we found another rock. And he'd, they'd go and examine the rock and change the design to fit around the rock. And then I just think that's terrific. That's, that's a romantic architect. But it's, a remark, it's an architect full of the confidence to do that kind of thing, not just raise everything to the ground and start with a nice tabula rasa. Sure. Um, and I know you're rarely without a camera. Um, are there things about his work that you have discovered through photography? Um, I found that it's almost too easy to photograph. Um, it just looks great no matter what you do. And it's very hard to take a bad photograph of it, um, which for me is a challenge. Is that For me, that's a problem, but that's my problem, not the problem with the building or anything else. It's like I take a photograph and it just looks too beautiful. So I, I've, but I still grapple with that. I don't think I've ever resolved that. I have lots of photographs. I've been to, the places I've photographed most are number 11 and Lunaganga, and I've done that on and off for 20 years. And it, or what am I saying, 20 years, nearly 30 years. Um, but I, I still feel as though every time I go, I have to keep photographing it. And it's, um, that's the challenge. The challenge is to somehow find some new way of looking at it that hasn't already presented itself to either other people, like Dominic, say, who's photographed it even much longer than me. Um, in fact, I can remember sitting, one of my early memories was sitting around the table in um, Sydney well, with, one, with Jeffrey on one of his visits when he brought the proofs of Dominic's book of Lunaganga the garden, mm -hmm. um, and we were all sitting around looking at them, and Jeffrey was really pleased with them, and he was showing them. And, and those, those photographs were, um, you know, they still shape my memory of it in a way. So my, I often think of Dominic's photographs as, many, as much as I might think of my own. My own tend to be in colour and his are black and white, but that's an accident of history, Not, nothing more than that. But I never discussed photography with him in, in that way. And, and I didn't, we didn't have any particular, um, I mean, I think for Jeffrey, um, he probably, Dominic would be the person he might have had those conversations with. Um, 
I was I I listened to him having conversations about photography or about drawing, um, and certainly about everything else to do with architecture. But I didn't particularly participate in them. And are you familiar with the photographs that he took? And um, only peripherally, not not. Um, no, I noticed you, that question were, um, pr prompted me to start thinking about what I did know, and I don't. I'd have to go and have another concerted look at it, so I can't really give you anything on that. Okay. Okay. Um, did you discuss literature, art, architecture? Only in the context of um, not one on one in that way, but in group in a situation maybe with Sohanya or uh, Sohanya's parents or so on, there, there would be discussions about films more than perhaps films and books, but also theatre, dance and so on, what who'd seen what and what it was about and whether it was any good and what was Chandi doing and all that sort of thing. There's a lot of discussion like that. Um, but uh, I don't think I'd say that they were they were sort of serious intellectual discussions about the, the meaning of work beyond the way that any of us would discuss it after having seen a film or whatever. So I don't think there was a, yes, it was intelligent discussion and so on, but it wasn't um, it wasn't overly intellectual. Um, in what influence, if any, did you think? he and his work had on your life and your career? Um, he, he's been a, he's certainly been an influence in the way that I look at space and buildings. No, absolutely no question. I can't help but um, go to, when, I, when I'm in a place that makes me want to think of it as a building or as an architectural space, um, which includes gardens and so on, and, as well, and large public spaces, I, I find myself more often than not um, using benchmarks that in my mind belong to the Bawa kind of way of approaching the world. Um, not always, I mean, I'm not, you know, and I studied art history and you do, you, when I studied art history, you only had three subjects and one of them was architecture. So, it, from in that context, I wasn't coming at it as a total novice, but at the same time, I never studied the physical making of it. So if, I think um, it certainly the, the sense of looking at the way that a space is constructed, the way the light falls, the, the uh, way people move through places and so on, all of that came into play even later in what, when I'd find myself sitting on, say, some council committee to do with wayfinding in... Brisbane or whatever, um, I would think of how somebody like of how Jeffrey might approach a problem in that way. What's the what, how's he going to deal with it this way? What about your career as an educator? He also um, he reinforced. I suppose I'd say that he. I'm a product of a time when um, aesthetics and beauty were under severe critique. In, and so it was the end of a modernist, beginning of a post-modernist um, period of discussion and um, beauty was uh, not something that fitted into the canon. So for me what Jeffrey did was reinforce a faith in the concept of an aesthetic that involved beauty, whatever beauty might be. It might be light space, I'm not talking just about prettiness, I'm talking about the idea of a sensual, physical response to something. Um, and that was, uh, that was a position that wasn't countenanced for a long time, for probably a decade, really. So I felt uh, that, that that was good. And then the other thing that he made me feel, that he influenced me on, was a sense of narrative was that you, because narrative was something else that was not countenanced in the early postmodern era. And that was this, and 
in a simple physical way, it's how you move through a space. And so how the space is telling you a story, but how you're constructing your story as you move through the space. And so that even in, a, in the, you know, the house we're sitting in now, it's the way you look as much as the way you move. It's what you see when you look through doors or windows or the way that the space is constructed in order for you to have a sense of something beyond your immediate place. So that's narrative in that way. Um, are there any questions that you wish you could have asked him? No, I don't think so. I just wish I'd known him longer. Finally, we hear from Sohanya and Michael together, reflecting on happy memories with Jeffrey, as well as on the enduring influence he has had on their professional lives in the art world. Mm-hmm. And in the years of your parents' friendship with him and your... Did you visit anything often? Yes. Mm-hmm. For me, as a child, we would be there nearly every two, three weeks, all the time. We were there all the time. Mm. We'd go all the time. And what is the experience of coming back to it, which you do periodically? It's, um, uh, uh, it, it never stops giving. You know, it's every time it's a, you know, it, you never feel like, oh yeah, I know this place. It's never, it's never like that. It's always a, a moment of breathlessness because it's so physically incredible. And yet it's so natural. There is, um, even though it's also highly structured, there is something about it that is deeply about nature and nature's balance with the human hand, which is such a fine balance because it can jump into jungle in a minute. Um, and that is the natural course of the world, but yet we exist and we coexist in that space. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us about the, I believe you did an exhibition oh, yes. in Australia. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Um, the exhibition in Australia, a very important exhibition, um, done in 1996. We had just moved to Brisbane in a couple of years before that. And there was a very important exhibition that Queensland Art Gallery was doing and I was working there called the Asia Pacific Triennial of Contemporary Art. And I always felt that it needed to have the voices of architects and designers, but it was never that because the museum that was doing it was a visual arts institution. So quite independently of that, I organised an exhibition, of a retrospective of Jeffrey's work that was actually a repurposed, you know, it used the AA show, but um, elaborated and built on it. Um, it was fantastic to do, and I worked with Michael because Michael's Institute of Modern Art helped me um, structure some of that thinking, and the publishing came out of that. We did a catalogue for it. Yeah. Um, Only a small one, but all it was doing was meant to supplement what was in the white book. So it, it but it had this house in it, had the Deserum house in it, and it had Candelama uh, in it. And I think they were probably the first times those drawings yes. had been used. Yeah. So it had, yeah. Mm. Um, and it was the first time actually that Jeffrey and it came to Brisbane at the time of the Asia-Pacific Triennial, which is a huge international profile as much as a national profile. So it was great to be able to show Jeffrey at the same time. I worked with the uh, architecture, the Institute of Architects, the Australian Institute for Architects to um, organize it. They were my co, my partners. And it toured to Sydney. And it, it, yeah, it toured to Sydney. Um, Darwin, Perth, and Singapore before coming back to mm. Sri Lanka. That that exhibition continued, so it was fantastic to be able to keep mm. keep going and keep showing it. Um, Jeffrey did a talk, which is like unheard of. Unheard of. He did a talk in Brisbane to this packed audience maybe 180 people um, and 
he did a Q&A at the end of it, which was also like unheard of. And it was riveting. It was fantastic. All the big architects of Australia were all there. They, of course, they, were just, they wanted to hear him speak because he spoke so rarely. Um, and he was just brilliant, full of anecdote, everybody laughing. One question, you know, how come all of the Bawa drawings are so pristine? Oh, we always do our drawings after the building has been built. <laughs> <laughs> Which architects laughed, of course. That sort of, you know, repartee. It was fantastic. Um, he had a ball. He had a ball. Trip. That he whole trip was fun. Chana was there. Chana was there. Chana was there too. Yeah, yeah. Chana was totally there. And Michael Kinnika, who was the um, head of architecture at uh, Queensland University and the chair of the Institute for Architects for Australia. Um, and had been to Yunganga. And, and organised to come. And he yeah. wrote a little intro essay for yeah. the book. He, he helped very do all of books, that. You know. But it was a very, very important moment because mm. because there were so many key figures, not just Australian you know, architects. there's a Russell Hall chair. Yeah, you can tell that. No, Russell no, Hall you tell chair. that. But it was, um, <laughs> you know, there were, it, it was, there were many people from um, other disciplines there who came and listened to him as well, from Asia, but also broader. Mm. I have a follow-up question, but let's hear this. Russell Hall chair. Russell Hall is a Brisbane architect, um, and he designed a chair, which Jeffrey, of course, coveted, thought, wish I could have designed that chair. <laughs> and so he spoke with Russell, and, and, they, and Russell gave him one of his chairs, which now sits in Lunaganga, in, just in the terrace there. But that chair, then Jeffrey totally elaborated and unpacked and repacked it and made it his chair. But he introduced the chair as the, at, the talk. at the talk as the Russell Hall chair that is now my chair. <laughs> <laughs> and Russell sitting there looking at it, thinking, that's my chair. <laughs> and what do you think that, because he so seldom talked about his own work, mm -hmm. And to see an exhibition, is, it's there yeah. in front of you. Did he speak about that experience of having, I mean, he had other exhibitions, yeah. but what do you think that was like? For him? And for him to be publicly, you know, did he enjoy that? I think he totally enjoyed it because he came to the Sydney opening as well. Mm. Yes, he did. Mm. Um, and he began to enjoy the environment of people looking at his work. I mean, he didn't speak in Sydney, not like he did in Brisbane. Um, and in Brisbane he spoke because I'd been able to persuade him that the context in Brisbane was so important that he needed to speak. And so he said, yes, all right then. <laughs> but of course, by the time he went to Sydney, it was just at the RAIA in Sydney and not with this more expanded context of the triennial and a big festival of the arts. So, um, but I think when he spoke in Brisbane, it wasn't, he wasn't inside the exhibition per se, and he talked about his practice as an architect, his story, how he arrived at it, and why he's enjoyed being an architect. It was very personal, very honest, and full of insight. I wish we had recorded it. It's just going to it is not recorded. You had to be there. As with so many things okay. Yeah. But um, to be honest, I don't think he would have let us record it either. So it was great that he was doing it. We weren't gonna push the envelope too far. <laughs> um and we have spoken a little bit about his visits, annual visits to Australia. Um, is there anything else you would like to say? I mean, I'm curious about, it must have been like a second home, and it seems like England was also another mm. I think base. Christophe and Jean, that was the other base, very important base for him there as well. Do you think for someone as sort of worldly as him, it was important to be 
back and forth to, between Sri Lanka and these much larger countries or much bigger worlds? Or do you think it was really about the people? You know, Jeffrey had always travelled, whether it uh, before he became an architect as part of really his education and then post as part of work. Um, but the travel that he did to Australia and to London for Jean and Christopher and Mama and Dada were very much about relationships. But when he was there, the time was always structured around seeing architecture and meeting people and, you know, getting to mm. know Glenn Merkert and, you know, all mm. of that. So mm. going to the Opera House and seeing seeing that work on mm. I mean, you, you, I was living you and Christopher and he somehow ended up at Bert Flugelman's down in yes, Kangaroo right. Valley or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, an artist, Bert Flugelman. And, and so very, um, very much interested in those worlds. And of course, he knew Donald Friend very well. And so there was the Friend connection and the Friend doors ended up going to the Archive of New South Wales. And so we would go to the to that Sydney, to that institution to have a look at those works. Um, yeah, there was a network that was there and he was interested in those networks. And he would look at art. We would walk through the art galleries. He loved doing that. And he loved to meet artists. Were there particular galleries mm -hmm. or kinds of art that he would, or was it, was he open? To, how did how did you decide which space you would go to? We we went yeah. to the institutions. Mm. You know, that's the the main collecting institutions to look. Did you go to commercial galleries? Yeah, we went to we went to Holdsworth galleries yes. because of yes. that. We went to yes. his, his book and his galleries. Yeah. Um, in Sydney there were many more commercial galleries at the time than in Brisbane. Um, yeah, we, we absolutely went looking. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then just kind of looking at both of your roles as educators and curators, um, how would you like to see Jeffrey's legacy perpetuated? Well, I mean, for, for me, it, it's so important that we keep as much of that work that he did alive and well in whatever context and in which, in whatever way it survives. Sometimes as a trustee, one is more successful than others, but I feel very proud as a trustee of the Lunuganga Trust and the Jeffrey Barber Trust that we've been able to really start to think about a, a phased approach to what that restoration might look like and how it will continue. We have seen, you know, we've kept number 11 and Lunuganga, at a, I think it's very, very good in a country where there is no heritage fund or support for um, that kind of work. So we have to look to our own devices and we've looked very carefully and thought about how to balance that. Number two, the office space exists. It's beautiful. You can enjoy and see it. Um, at Lunuganga, we've been able to reconstruct and restore the number five, you know, in a December house. It's a very, very important um, archival project, archiving a piece of architecture. Now, the Deserum house as a partnership with the owners to take it on as part of the trust's work. And then the Benthuta Beach working, you know, China working on advising on the restoration and recreation of that space. Um, how we take the next steps, we have to think about many things, but clearly the legacy is a very important part of the trust's work. But the trust's work also looks at the archive, the, Jeffrey's archive and making sure that we now have that in place, placing key works in international collections, um, and then thinking about education, exhibition, the art collection, and starting to really build up the 
the argument actually to make in Sri Lanka for the need of a formal institution, a public institution that brings the histories, um, the 20th century and 21st century histories that are our heritage to everybody. I think, I think for me too, as someone who's not a Sri Lankan, it's um, Jeffrey's a figure of international repute and influence, and he is widely respected and well outside of Sri Lanka. Um, and so he offers a model to, to do what Sanya was just saying, which is to have people regard the, hist the contemporary and recent modern history of Sri Lanka as part of a continuum from the archaeological two and a half thousand, three thousand year old history, which everybody thinks is what history means. And it's not that history is, of course, living now. And so Jeffrey's, by the nature of his work and his international reputation, happens to sit even in his passing as a figure that one can use to do what Sanya said about, which is to educate people enough to feel that it's valuable. But also all of the other artists around that, the other artists and architects and so on who were working through that period, some of whom preceded Jeffrey, some of whom have come after him, that that's a valuable thing. And it's very easy in a country that's not prosperous, that's had civil dispute, that's, that struggles to kind of find an identity that, that is contemporary as distinct from past and so on, post-colonial, if you like, um, to have figures like this who can actually provide an identity. And it's an identity that is about a really fabulous Sri Lanka. It's about a, it's an identity of a, of a person who saw the world, looked at what it had, brought the bits of it he wanted back here and made something that was unique out of that. And it was uniquely Sri Lankan. So from, from my perspective as an outsider, that's incredibly important to both hang on to, but incredibly valuable to take further. Um, one more um, and what, I mean, you kind of just answered it, but I'd like to move on to what some of the most interesting or valuable aspects of both men, the person and his work, that you think are particularly resonant today? I think that he was such an open, cosmopolitan, international figure that decided that Sri Lanka was home, Sri Lanka was who he is and will always be, and that those two lived together with a seamless dynamism. And that is really important. It was fantastic. Totally lived for the moment in the world and curious in every sense, both locally and internationally. We would like to thank the trustees of the Jeffrey Bauer Trust and our generous patrons and sponsors for the Bauer 100 program. This podcast is copyrighted to the Jeffrey Bauer Trust. All rights reserved. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at archive at gbtrust.net. We would love to hear from you. To find more resources on Jeffrey Bauer, attend our events or volunteer, you can visit our website or follow us on social media. Please hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember to leave us a review because this helps people find us more. Until next time, take care.